Welcome to episode number 56 of the Bearded Marketers Podcast, the only internet marketing podcast that matters. I'm Rob. And I'm Corey. We bring you the latest news, trends, strategies, tips, whatever it is in the internet marketing community, I guess you could call it, every week. Winner's Uh, circle. Yeah, you can catch new episodes every Monday morning, about 10 a.m. Eastern at thebeardedmarketers.com slash podcast. Uh, Of course, you can also find them on iTunes. Before we get started with every show, we like to get in the mood with some adult beverages. So what are you doing, my man, right now to get in the mood? So I actually returned back to an old favorite of mine, a sidecar, which is half parts cognac, lemon juice, finishing it off with full part Contro. How about yourself? Now, did you do the official sidecar recipe and line the edge of your glass with sugar? I did not. So, you know, even though I'm drinking a beverage with sugary liqueur, I'm trying to watch my carbs. It's summertime here, so... (laughs) The one gram of carbs you would (laughs) sprinkle on the edge. How about Um, you? I am, again, going back to a classic as well. I feel like I'm a broken record at this point with (laughs) Moscow Mules. I don't like to break out of the... You know, I like... Getting in the podcast found mood something good. with the one thing that I want to mm-hmm. drink when we're doing a podcast, and I stick to it, you know? Okay. Creature habit. Get some cognitive juices flowing. Yeah, exactly. So uh, let's run down the list. Let's just get right down into it. All right. It wouldn't be a podcast if we didn't cover what was happening over with our friends in Mountain View, our Google Corner. We're going to roll into mobile email design. What are some things you need to keep in mind, too, when people are squinting at their small screens, reading at your emails? How do you still be successful in those situations? There's a new schema release. If you don't know what a schema is, we're going to even cover that. So don't worry if your eyebrows are being raised or you're scratching your head. You don't know what that is. We'll enlighten you. And then lastly, we're going to move on to testing validation. We'll keep it a little bit vague, so you'll have to stick around and see what we're talking about. But kicking things off in the Google Corner, as always, it was an eventful week from our friends at Google, but just wanted to cover some of the high-level things that came out this week that you probably should pay attention to. Namely, if you run PPC, be prepared, hold on to your britches, because April 22nd, there's a big AdWords feature release. So they've been quite under wraps about what they're going to be talking about, but they are going to be rolling out some of the new features that they've been working on hard in the lab with AdWords. There's a lot of speculation, and I'm not really going to go into that. One of the speculations that we will go into for a little bit is there is quite a few people that seem to think, and there's actually a lot of data to prove this, there's going to be a big push on linking in conversions over multiple devices into one and getting better at quantifying what your marketing spend is and how that's relating back dollars. Because, you know, as we live in this multi-screen world, it's become more and more difficult to grab a hold of when I'm spending dollars, especially on the PPC side of things. How am I getting that return? How do I know when I'm spending in one campaign, it might be a good one to start that conversation, but they might be converting later on. How do we bring all that data together? So AdWords has actually released some newer reporting looking at total estimated conversions. They've also has some new cross-device reporting mm-hmm. as well. So there's a lot of stars that are becoming aligned to put some credence behind some of these speculations. Yeah, it seems to be jumping on the back of Universal Analytics right. user ID tracking, um, which they had just released out of beta as well. Mm-hmm. So it's probably using some of the same technology uh, right. that that's using to keep track of people across across multiple devices. Continuing that theme, Google has also been reported to conducting beta tests with certain offline providers of products and relating offline purchases into AdWords. So what they're actually testing is 
looking at phone data in stores and relating that back to PPC spends to those mobile customers. So they've actually been working with data providers like DataLogic and Axiom to measure the impact of your AdWords spend on offline conversions. So they've talked about that they're going to be using some of the cookie information from phones and also beaconing off of in online stores to try to understand some of that information does raise some privacy concerns potentially with some yeah, people. Absolutely. You know, how is that opt-in process going to work? Are people going to be aware of that over the last couple of years with the Snowden type situations and just a greater level of awareness of their privacy? It'll be interesting to see how they skirt that issue. Because mm-hmm. uh, I feel like Google, for all the good that they do, you know, they do run the risk of getting a deep sense of being that big brother. And I always feel like they're one or two mistakes away from causing a mass exodus of people. Fortunately, they have a really good product, so there's not many places you can go. But they do run the risk of getting that reputation. I think that some of these things might be kind of skirting the edge of that. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of people will always have concerns about privacy, especially when you're talking about things like this, where I'm not even on the internet, theoretically. I'm not like actively using my internet browser, but now you're sort of trying to keep track of where I'm going after I was searching for something. It would be interesting to see how some of this ties together, Mm -hmm. ultimately. For the vast majority of people, as long as these advertising products ultimately help people, which they will, because that's how advertising makes more money for people, that I don't think a lot of people have complaints about it. Uh, I think people may think it's weird, Mm -hmm. but they may not even really notice how targeted or how much more targeted and better advertising gets for them right? uh, unless you really explain it to them. So I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting when I explain retargeting to some people that aren't necessarily in the industry, they think, oh, well, I guess that makes sense because sometimes I go to these sites and then I all of a sudden see ads about them all over the place. Well, the ones that kill me are like you go to some small random little site and then people will say things like, wow, I can't believe this site's advertising all over Facebook. (laughs) They must be <laughs> no, that's not how it works. <laughs> but some of the stuff like that. But, you know, oftentimes when people hear about that, they go, oh, so that explains that. They don't go, oh, what the hell? Yeah, this is you weird. Know, I, I need to here. unplug right now. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a good point. It'll be interesting to see how that test goes. The data providers that are involved with this beta, though, are pretty well established. So DataLogic in particular, mm-hmm. Facebook has used them in the past, Twitter has even, to do some off projects. So, I mean, if anyone's good at splicing and dicing a lot of data, it would be Google for sure. So we'll see what comes out of that. Another thing that was kind of interesting this week, especially on the heels of the Heartbleed incident, was There was a discussion that Matt Cutts had recently where he had mentioned that he's pitching internally, which he hasn't really gotten a lot of buy-in, which might be interesting now that Heartbleed has gone on. That might have changed. But he actually wants to provide a ranking boost to sites that use SSL search site-wide, so having a secure site. And there's a lot of discussion about the implications of that, you know, that it's kind of a difficult migration for some of the large companies to do. There's a lot of costs there, a lot of redoing of URLs. There's potentially some infrastructure that has to go on to provide something like that. Even some of the more conspiracy hat theory type people are talking about it could be some SEO implications. If you change your site over to secure, now your URLs are slightly different. So is that going to erase your ranking, which I thought was a little (laughs) bit far-fetched, but whatever. So that was something that was interesting that went on that got a lot of buzz recently that got some people thinking. I don't know how much customers are paying attention to that. I mean, I think that Heartbleed has gotten some people's attention. I still don't know if they make the, the technology leap 
mm-hmm. they know there was a security issue with a lot of sites online, but I don't know how many of them are well-versed enough to know to look out for those types of things now. Yeah, I think it matters for customers purchasing on sites that they're not familiar with. But for the most part, I mean, I purchase from the same places and I never pay attention to that. I don't really care. But for example, if I'm doing some random weird thing like looking up my DMV records for my driver's license, I'll make sure that I'm on SSL because I'm putting in some weird sensitive information. Sure. But for the most part, I don't really pay attention to SSL. I'm sure mileage varies based on a lot of other things and for other people. Back to the Heartbleed issue, you know what I thought was most confusing about the whole issue? I mean, technically, I understand what happened and you know, people who are in the industry probably understand what happened. But I went to a lot of major sites that had Heartbleed warnings or mm-hmm. sent out Heartbleed emails. Number one, um, terrible name. <laughs> Right. Who came up with that? Number two, not well explained by anyone. Uh, just you don't need to get into the technical details of what the hell happened here. Number three, I'm not sure how important it was that we actually needed to notify a lot of people on some of these websites. I mean, I understand. Well, what I'm exactly sure the happened. lawyers in this case felt it was probably easier to cover their yeah, litigation maybe. bases. Yeah, I guess that's a good way to put it. I mean, I, for example, on SoundCloud, I thought was particularly piss poor in their implementation of their heartbleed warning. It was just basically like heartbleed warning, I think it said something like that in a in a sliver across the top of the site, which to most people means absolutely nothing. Right. You need to say something that means something to people. In fact, I think most of these emails could have avoided the term heartbleed completely. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that was my little rant about what happened in Understandable. that industry. So it'll be interesting. The SSL integration, we'll see if that actually comes to fruition, but it is something that has started to become a, a serious conversation internally at Google and you know, maybe something you need to at least start the conversation from internally in your company as well. What the trade-offs are, what are the pros and cons, and what will be the effort involved in that. Last thing that we'll cover, there has been numerous report sightings that they are testing adding PLAs into the carousel on search engine results pages. So You just again, use a lot of phrases that <laughs> some people may not be aware right, of what so they mean. So PLAs, if it's product listing ads, those are ways that you can market your specific products on Google AdWords. Great way to get some more conversions. We've seen personally PLAs have just skyrocketed over the last year or two. If you're not really using them and you're in the e-commerce space, you need to get with it. But they're mixing up how they're displaying the products that Google is recommending for your particular search and moving it into the carousel, which some people might have noticed when you search more localized items like pizza or things like that, there will be a carousel at the top of the search engine results with reviews and things like that Mm -hmm. of places. Now they're actually moving some of the product ads in there as well, which we've seen can increase your conversion rate quite a bit. So first step, if you're not using PLAs and you're in the e-commerce space, you need to. And two, just be aware that Google is playing around with where they're serving those. So If you're noticing some fluctuation in your data, that might be a cause of it. That's going to be it for our Google Corner. That was a lot, but Google likes to mix things up every week. So give us some fresh topics. And since they drive a lot of traffic for us, it's important to pay attention to. So moving right along, Professor Rob's going to tell us a little bit about mobile email design. What are the things that we need to keep in mind? I just wanted to run through a few uh, quick tips, maybe strategies slash ideas to keep in mind when you're sending out emails because I've been doing a ton of email sends lately, been getting more involved in email marketing. And one thing that I've noticed consistently, no matter the list that I'm sending to, is that the percentage of users opening on primarily Apple, iPhone, and iPad devices is massive compared to everything else. Everyone is opening with those devices 
and with the built-in browsers on those or the built-in email clients on those devices. So if you're not designing your email campaigns as well as the emails themselves with uh, mobile users in mind, then you are missing out on a huge chunk of your traffic. Um, There's some easy ways to find out what percentage of that stuff is. I mean, if you're using any of the major email senders, which we know and love MailChimp, we always give a shout out to them. Mm They give you the breakdown for every email campaign you send out. So you can, there's a simple report and you can see what your percentage is. Anyway, so a couple things that to keep in mind. Number one, and this one may seem obvious, but a lot of people, it doesn't may, maybe click with some of the email campaigns they send is if you're sending an email campaign out and you know you go through all the work to make it look great on mobile devices, it's responsive or whatever tactics or strategies you're using to make it look great, then you send them to a website that is not set up to look well on a mobile device. Happens um, a lot. Right. You're missing out on a lot. Uh, and, you know, that's one of those things that some of those departments, hey, look, I don't have control over the website. But maybe you have control over a landing page you can set up that sort of eases that process in or maybe captures more lead information and does the job on that landing page itself instead of sending people off to the full website. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's definitely one thing you want to keep in mind. Well, that's an important one, though. I mean, yeah. I feel like a lot of the clients that we deal with, those things are siloed. We have our development team, then we have our email team. So my job is to generate these emails and make sure that they work well. Well, when you're doing email marketing, you can't look at those two things as divorced. You yeah. know, you can't just look at your click-through rates and your conversion rates and things like that and think of the site as something that's like outside your control. I mean, that has to be a real battle for you and something that you have to fight for because... Like you said, it makes no real sense to spend a lot on a good email service provider and spend a ton of time developing up these gorgeous looking emails that work really well at getting attention if you're sending them to a site that is just going to be super poor for a good segment of readers that are going to mm-hmm. get these emails. So it has to be something that you have to take some ownership in. Yeah. So that was one that was sort of outside the emails themselves. The rest of these tips are sort of about, you know, one thing that a lot of people don't pay attention to or maybe don't think of is the preview text in your emails on mobile clients. You know, obviously for Outlook, everyone's familiar with these things, but I think on phones, maybe it's even more important. Don't make the first sentence in your email having trouble (laughs) viewing this, you know, whatever. Click here to open it in a new window. So many people still do that. It's terrible. It's amazing. Write a little tagline in there that's that more fully explains what's going on in the email itself. It, it's another opportunity, just like writing AdWords ads. You get your headline, well, then you get a couple, you know, extra sentences, extra lines to explain what your deal is right. about. So take advantage of those things. I think people need to keep that in mind too. I've noticed that the apprehension to using a lot of images and emails has gone away. You know, as technology has progressed, we mm-hmm. got faster internet connection speeds, things like that. But people still forget about those small tips like that. So I noticed that a lot of people out there will have all image emails, or they'll forget about like things like preview text and things like that and still needing to optimize those small parts about emails. You've made it look really good, but you still need to remember those small tips about using preview text to get those open rates and engagement rates as high as possible. A couple more things. You know, for all those old school web devs out there, and web marketers, we're all too familiar with the issues of dealing with the Internet Explorer sixes of the world back in the day when every internet browser displayed your website in its own creative, new, and <laughs> different, great different way. To, way. <laughs> diplomatic way to put it. Right. For the most part, a lot of those issues have sort of disappeared if you 
code up to the latest sort of standards of CSS and, and HTML with divs and not tables everywhere and all this other sort of crap. If you use sort of the kind of code that most everyone else designs with these days, your internet website will look the same on all of the major browsers. But that's not necessarily the case yet with email clients, especially on mobile phones. So while your websites probably look great across all the browsers, you definitely do still need to take the time to make sure that your emails look the same or look readable or don't look completely busted mm. um, in all of the major clients on Android and Apple, not to mention just the Apple mobile browsers as well, because some people may be looking at those in like the web version of Gmail or whatever it is. So make sure you test on all of those major clients. And you know, again, if you're sending out emails through a major ESP, check what those major clients and platforms are and make sure your emails look good in all of those things. Last but not least, uh, and you know, this kind of applies to designing websites for mobile users, period. But I think also, again, this is more important for emails, is that the way that people use, the way that people read emails on their mobile phone is completely different than the way that they read emails on their devices, their desktop devices. So for example, one of the major differences is scrolling is a is something that people are used to doing on their phones, right? I mean, that's right. that's a given. I'm scrolling all the time because I can't fit much info on my screen and I'm used to that sort of behavior. Mm-hmm. It's not really the case on a desktop. Most people don't have to scroll through an email that they get sent on their desktop. So the way that you design emails and the above the fold concept is different between how you send out emails to mobile people versus desktop clients. So that's another thing you need to keep in mind. Uh, maybe we need to go into more detail with some of these yeah, things in a so. future episode. I don't want to take up too much time of this podcast. Those are some quick things to keep in mind when you're sending out emails these days because everyone is sending out emails to a massive number of mobile users and you don't want to forget some of the basics. So our next topic, we're going to get into schema. And I think before I explain, because you made a good point earlier, before I explain the new schema that got released, why don't you enlighten some of our listeners on Uh-oh. What are we talking about? Schema. Why are you putting this on me anyway? Because you're the professor. So you're the best at explaining things. Let's see if I can come up with an easy way to explain this. I guess schema is, the way you could look at it is, for anyone who out there is familiar with coding in HTML, right? So there's different H1 tags you can use that describe headlines. Uh, There's P tags you use to describe paragraphs. Schema is, takes that to another level, right? So there's tags you can add on those tags that help further explain tags on tags, tags on tags, tags, on tags <laughs> that help explain what's in those paragraph tags or what's in okay. those headlines or things like that. So for example, there are specific address tags you can use to help explain an address that's on your website. And a lot of this stuff was designed for blind users on the internet who need their screen reader devices to be able to understand that these are addresses and phone numbers and mm-hmm. different actual pieces of data that may be on websites. So schema helps explain some of the data on your website. I guess that's maybe an easy... Yeah, yeah. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, even like things like video and that's even been taken to a new level with some of the authorship tags and things like that as well. Yeah, so any of the new feature-rich, I guess, listings in the search engine result pages you may be seeing on Google or Yahoo or whatever that have... You know, this article was written by X and X on X and X. All that data is being pulled in from schema stuff that's on the page itself and the code. Right. And one thing that's important to point out as well is schema is not something that is solely owned by Google or a certain search engine. It's actually an outside organization that sets standards, kind of like 
CSS standards or W3C mm-hmm. and things yep. like that. And the search engines end up adopting and will incorporate that into their data feeds and crawlers to pick up on that. So keeping all that in mind, there's a new one that got released. And this probably doesn't relate to a ton of people out there, but it is important to note because it can set you apart in the search engine results where there's a new schema release to measuring certain times users to complete a task. So it's called action schema. And what it allows for you to do is essentially communicate a amount of time to complete something on this particular web page. So a lot of applications you can use for that. Maybe it's like cooking a meal or completing a test, things like that, that can be picked up by these search engines, depending on what you're talking about in your content on that page. And that will also be served up in your search engine results. And if there's anything that we've learned is a ton of people turn to search engines every day to find the content that they want. Being able to stand apart from the crowd Mm -hmm. is a strong competitive advantage. I mean, that's one of the things that we talked about actually a couple podcasts ago is, you know, some of these uh, bleeding edge things, you know, there's a lot of people that argue, well, everyone's just going to do it and there's really no rush to, you know, take advantage of it or whatever. And And that's really not the case. I mean, even if your competitors end up adopting this because it's free or whatever the case might be, if it's just 10% of time that you get ahead of your competitors to be able to integrate some of these things, that's a win. And again, consider how many people turn to search engines every day. Having that slight competitive advantage can be the difference between you being a rock star marketer and just everyone else in the crowd that looks at the benchmark guides on what they need to do and the quick tips. So it's important that you keep in mind some of these new things as they get rolled out and be kind of first to market and play around with some of these things because, again, it can really help you set yourself apart. That's going to be a bit technical. I think what will be best is we're going to tweet out the link to this article. You can take what we're going to actually do is tweet out a couple things. One is a couple links on you to learn about schema. If it's something that we're talking about here and you have no earthly idea on what we're discussing take a look at these links but then also we're going to tweet out about this new schema that's been released on actions it might be something that's relevant to you but there again there's a lot of uses out there but take a look again the competitive advantage that's super important for us to stay on top of especially in this hyper competitive online world last topic that we're going to discuss Ooh, i love this i mean i love testing but this is a this is a personal favorite of mine and something I enjoy Uh-oh. talking about. So I'm going to screw it up and you'll correct me. <laughs> I doubt that. But <laughs> it's going to be test validation and really different ways that you can go about looking at your tests. How do we determine that a test is a winner? Yeah. How are some different ways to even look at testing going into it? So even regardless of if a test is running, what's the thought process we need to have when we're just in the hypothesis stage of what are we trying to test and what are we trying to look at? What are we going to determine a winner? What are we going into this trying to learn? Yes. So even though you do call me a professor, Rob, I would like to preface this with I'm not a professor, nor do I have a doctorate in anything I heard you go at all. Those, so. <laughs> Online. All I have is a bachelor's of science, I believe, in marketing. I'm not even really sure what it's in. So you are a professor. It's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> I could be. Anyway, so my point is, like, I'm not a statistician. I don't know the complete ins and outs of validity on testing and t-tests and some of these other terms that you can use. More like theory of, you know, what you were talking about is how do we go into a test Oftentimes, a lot of people have simple tests that they want to run in theory, right? So I want to get more leads to my website, right? So let me change up the headline and some buttons and maybe I can get more leads. 
and run a test using that as the success metric and whatever tool you're using. But I think there's so many other ways that you can look at tests. And I want to, you know, sort of maybe warn people not to only pay attention to the primary success metric that you're using. That oftentimes for companies, you know, in the lead example of I want to just increase leads, well, ultimately, I mean, unless your company is sort of a weird outlier who maybe sells leads immediately, you're trying to sell them something. So the real goal on the back end of that is how much revenue are you making from these leads? And all of that data is available in the testing platform you're using, at least it should be if you're using a legitimate one. While in the front end, I may be looking at leads, what's actually happening on the revenue back end? And if it's actually only performing the same with revenue, maybe that says something about these new leads I'm getting that there aren't as qualified. And there's other ways you could look at it too. What about time on site or page interaction or how long people interact with you? And that's just a simple example of trying to increase leads. When you get into e-commerce testing, which is what you use and, and deal with all the time, man, there's like 10 different metrics you could look at for any given test. And there's all sorts of ways to clean out data Mm -hmm. Uh, ignore certain data sets, ignore certain data days or hours or times or exclude segments from, you know, people who got to our website from an email that we just sent. I don't want those people included on my test. I mean, there's literally a million ways to test and segment and analyze tests. So this is my warning to you. And again, I feel like a lot of topics we go, can't spend all day talking about this. We (laughs) could literally, I mean, we could pull up Professor Rob. We Mm -hmm. could teach a class on this. But this is my sort of warning that tests aren't that simple. Sure. Um, When you hear people say that I got an X and X percent increase on some sort of test, there's usually a lot of baggage associated with that. And you can't just look at that surface level results. When you run your own tests, don't just look at that primary success metric. Look at all the other metrics. If you're using content experiments, I mean, the tabs are right there. You can look at site usage metrics, e-commerce metrics, and there's tons of different ones for each one of those categories. So pay attention to those. Caution people to also look at testing in the full scope of your business. You know, like you mentioned, let's go back to the lead example. Not only are we looking for leads or people to purchase things, But there are also other tangible business metrics, as in we're getting leads in. What is the average time agents are having to spend to actually close these leads? So there's these other business costs that we need to take into consideration. Or what is the average lifetime of those people coming in? That gets into a lot more complex testing because we have to measure results much longer than maybe even the test is actually run. It's interesting how many people do not consider those types of things as even wins. You know, when we run a test, sometimes the conversion rate isn't necessarily that much higher or lower, but we notice that there is a lot less calls in to complete an order or other costs to the business that can be quantified through certain tools that people don't even take into account when they're looking at tests. Or, you know, one of the recent ones that we ran, we saw a pretty decent conversion increase with one of our partners. But what the real gain was, was the average revenue that we were getting per order. So AOV in that instance was a prime validator for us on that test. Whereas conversion was what nice. We saw a gain on that, but we were doubling the amount that people were spending per order. And it's interesting how many people just rely on what's built into tools to essentially tell them what happened. And they don't really walk through, what are these people coming into my tests? What are they doing on our website? And how is that being impacted? And how can I report on that to understand 
what is the true impact of this other than how many leads did I get or how many skateboards I sold or whatever it might be. So keep those things in mind. Test validation. It's an important topic. If you want to learn more about that, send us a message because it's something that we're really passionate about. We can talk about it for a long time, but you know, we want to see what you guys think about it and if it's something that we should spend some more time on. That's going to do it for us on episode number 56. Thank you for your time. If you like this episode, share with a friend or a colleague. Also, leave us a review on iTunes. It'd be greatly appreciated. If you listen every week and go, ah, the bearded guys, they didn't talk about it again. You got a topic that's burning in your heart or maybe something that the boss is yelling at you about and you don't know where to turn. Give us a call, 904-270-9603. We'll work you into a recent episode. And if we can't help you out directly, then we can certainly put you in contact with someone that can. Again, that's going to do it for us. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.